The stimulus bill passed by Congress and signed into law by President Obama has employers excited about the potential for saving healthcare dollars from comparative effectiveness, technology assessment, and cost control. Welcome to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and with me today is Helen Darling. Ms. Darling is president of the National Business Group on Health, a nonprofit coalition representing some of the nation's largest employers when it comes to national policy issues. National Business Group on Health includes more than 300 members, and more than 60 of them are in the Fortune 100. These firms purchase health and disability benefits for more than 55 million employees, retirees, and dependents of these companies. Ms. Darling has worked in consulting at Watts and Wyatt Worldwide, Mercer Inc., and was one time an advisor to the Health Subcommittee of the powerful Senate Finance Committee. She joins us today from her office in Washington, D.C. Helen Darling, welcome to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you so much, Bruce. Well, it's great to have you here, especially being from Washington, where there's all sorts of exciting things going on. And the, the stimulus bill, which everybody talks about, you know, and what it gave to this bank or that bank, actually contains funding for a lot of healthcare initiatives that the employer community, others have been pushing, like comparative effectiveness and and things that are have really a broad range of, of support. and And I'm wondering, how do you see this research going forward, and and what kind of support does these things have? Well, you're right. The, the right word is excited because we are incredibly excited about this. First of all, it's uh, about a billion dollars for something that we have really never had, and everyone agrees is extremely important. We know a lot about health care and various treatments and drugs, and usually in the process of those things being approved, either through regulatory agencies or for payment purposes, we learn whether something works or it doesn't work, and it's safe and effective. But what we've never had before is the opportunity to compare drugs, devices, treatments, different ways we provide care with other ways to accomplish the same thing in a sort of head-to-head comparison. So a comparative effectiveness research answers the question is not just does something work or is it, is it a good idea, but how it works compared to alternative treatments for the same problem. And that is very, very exciting. And it's a lot of money. And we have a, we have a pent-up demand in a number of different areas, a number of different subjects that we want to study. And the exciting thing about this is it begins developing the underlying infrastructure, both research and information from private practices and public practices all around the country, so that we can answer questions, does a particular drug or does a device or does a particular way of treating something better than something else? And if it is, then, of course, you would want to have that available to everybody. But if it's not, it may be that something that's been being done for years, it may be much lower cost, as good as it's ever going to be, and that's the kind of thing you would want to make sure everybody has access to. And when you're talking about a billion dollars, like, can you give me an example of perhaps a health employer or somebody, like, what would they get money for to do what? Well, it may be that a hospital, for example, would be a site that they studied a particular technology that was being used. 
So maybe how often do you need to move people in and out of an ICU or something like that? Is it better to get people up right after surgery or after a couple of hours or half a day or something like that? Or is it better to let them have certain things before you start them moving? Those kinds of questions. Now, a lot of this research goes on all the time. Yeah, and this, this would give some money toward it. And essentially, it's, it's almost like when the National Institutes of Health funds a clinical trial to see if something works and is, is good for patients or harmful, this is sort of the long-awaited cost-benefit analysis that the government would be helping pay for. Right. But what's interesting about it, too, is there are these other studies that go on all the time to determine whether or not something works and under what circumstances. But again, this offers a, an ability then to also compare with, there may be an example that is clinical, so I'm not the best person for this, but for example, the difference between using a stent and a stent that's called a drug-eluting stent, and that's a stent that has, I'll put it in lay terms, medication, as opposed to one of the so-called bare metal stent. Each of those was effective under different circumstances, but there wasn't certainty about whether one was more effective than the other. And that's a, a hard example for the average person, including me, to get their mind around, but that's a good example of something where you need to know how they compare to each other. And also, in some instances, they both may be effective, but effective for different people in different circumstances. Yeah, and a lot of physicians out there who might be listening, that's an area where a lot of doctors, even cardiologists, are thinking, when do I give a drug-coated stent or not? Yes, and you, we want research that allows them to know. And by the way, this is all done with professionals, with the appropriate professionals. And what again, what's different about this is, number one, it's much more, and number two, it is truly to be about comparative effectiveness. Now, you mentioned something about cost, and there's one thing that we are being very careful about. In our system, we want to have evidence about whether something works or not and under what circumstance. That's sort of step one. And if it does work and it's better than alternatives or so-called conventional treatment, then you can ask the question, you know, how much does it cost? Let's say if conventional treatment and the one that's being compared to are equally effective, both work, but one is 10 times more expensive, then you might say, well, wait a minute, why would we pay for the one that's 10 times more expensive if they're both equal in terms of effectiveness? And there just isn't a lot of data out on this right now. No, there's not. And we want to do it in a stepwise progression. So you don't need to even study the cost of something if it's not effective. So you want to determine whether or not it's effective, and then you can look at whether or not it's cost-effective. And then also, in some instances, you can decide maybe it's cost-effective for some people, but not cost-effective for others. Well, if you're just joining us, or even if you're new to our channel, you're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune. I'm your host, and joining me today is Helen Darling. She's the president of the National Business Group on Health. They are a group that represents some of the nation's largest employers in helping them with their healthcare purchasing decisions. And we've been talking about some goodies in the stimulus bill that you also may not have heard about, where a billion dollars is being given to help providers and insurers and employers with comparative effectiveness and technology assessment in healthcare. And Helen, you were just talking about this. And where where are we in, put another way, what do you see as the key drivers of higher healthcare costs? And 
and what can be done to address these things going forward, maybe perhaps using some of the tools you've been talking about? The number one driver of healthcare costs is the fact that we use a lot of healthcare. So if you look at the data, you see that as a country, people throughout the country go to the doctor a lot, they get a lot of tests made, they have screenings, they take prescription drugs, they do a whole bunch of things. Unfortunately, much of what we treat and much of what we spend money on are for conditions and problems that are pretty much result from lifestyle and individual choices that people make about what they eat, how much they eat, and how physically active they are. So they don't they take in a lot more calories than they burn up in any given day and of course, you know, year over year they just keep gaining weight. So we have a third of the American people are obese and another third are overweight. And as a consequence, we have an epidemic of obesity. We also have an epidemic of diabetes. We have a lot of sickness and chronic conditions in the country that come from individual choices and individual behavior. So if we're going to control health care costs, we have to help people to either be healthy or stay healthy if they're already healthy so that we don't need the healthcare system very much except for those rare, relatively rare problems that have nothing to do with the way we live our lives and have to do with other factors. Well, and having said that, in talking about these bad behaviors, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how employers and your members are working to reward better outcomes and change our physicians' patients' behaviors because there's a lot more being done in this regard than there used to be. Yes, there is. And behind that question are really two different tracks. And if I, I'll go down one and then stop me if I do need to go down the other. But the first is we're working hard to try to improve payment for primary care services so that physicians can be able to spend more time with their patients and talk with them about improving their health and what they need to do. So the physicians can play a very key role in educating their their own patients about healthy lifestyles and the health benefits of that. In addition, employers are making available, in many instances, they're actually paying their employees and their adult dependents to take a health risk appraisal, a self-assessment, using a self-assessment tool. So they, they fill out a form, basically, that answers questions like, you know, how active are you and do you eat vegetables, and has a bunch of closed-ended questions. And then that assessment, that appraisal, that report is given to you by a health professional. None of this information is given to employers. It's all handled by third-party professionals in the health business. And they will contact you if you agree. You have to sign a form at the bottom that says, I'm happy to take a, a call from someone to talk, talk about the results of my report. So then they talk to the employee or the adult dependent about their possible risk factors. So they may see that in some instances the employees are also able to go either to an on-site screening center or to their own doctor and get screenings, so blood pressure and cholesterol and things like that, to fill out the form. So then that information is given back to the individual, again by health professionals, all confidential, and that person talks to them about their risk factors and encourages them to change what they're doing in order to reduce risk factors. And are there ways that physicians can help in this regard? I mean, are physicians aware of these initiatives as well, or how, how, how can they help? 
usually they ask, and then they have to provide the information, would you like us to send this report to your doctor? So the employee has to, or the adult dependent has to agree to that. Well, we encourage them to do it. We said, you, you know, you want to be talking with your physician about what your risk factors are and what you've learned, and to use it as a way to start a conversation. And among other things, to let your doctor know that you really want to be healthy and not just, you know, correct a problem, but you want to be well. You want to be resilient and energetic and have optimal performance. In every way, you want to be healthy, not just have an illness or an injury fixed. A lot of employers are also offering more incentives to get people to get to the doctor. I mean, you know, perhaps cash off their premiums, maybe a retailer gift card and so forth. And so that, too, is a way that employers are trying to encourage people to go see their doctor and avoid something costly down the road. That's right. In many instances, they're paying for screenings and preventive care at 100%, no deductible. So if you get those, you wouldn't have to pay anything at all. So that is an important step. And they're also encouraging them to, for example, if they have risk factors, and frankly most of them do, then they may offer the ability to talk to a coach, an individual, a personal coach who would, you know, call them and say, oh, by the way, you know, how's, what did the doctor say at the last appointment? And things that are all to coach the person into a level of wellness that they never had before, maybe, and could be very, very important as a way to turn around thinking about what they do for themselves. Well, with that, I'd like to thank Helen Darling, who has been our guest. She's the president of the National Business Group on Health, a coalition representing some of the nation's largest employers when it comes to purchasing health care. And we've been talking about comparative effectiveness and a lot of tools that are getting some support in the new stimulus bill. My name is Bruce Japson with the Chicago Tribune. I've been your host, and you've been listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on the air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And I'd like to thank you today for listening.